Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I think that what we're describing is a, a, a reality, a reality that's right there for us. As we're talking here, I'm looking out. I ha- There's a kind of dead tree here. I'm regretting. I'm, someday I know this tree is going to have to come down, but I actually very much enjoy this dead tree because uh, there's a woodpecker that has come and is, and he comes fairly regularly because it clearly is attracting all the bugs. And a cardinal has come and landed in the same tree. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think there's a sense of a place. If you will indulge me, I'll read the last part of my little story about liberty. And actually what I'm describing here is a very well-known social, I mean, this may make it boring to explain what it is, that it probably shouldn't take this explanation, but I'll go ahead and put it in. And that is that in every place where people find contentment and happiness, or there is a place of creativity, that these are often described as third places, a, a place that is not your work, it's not your home, but it's a, a kind of unthreatening third place where you can go and just be who you are, that you're not you're a father or you're not an employee or an employer. You're just who you are. And I think that in every culture, that it is those cultures who encourage and develop third places that in fact are, are going to find peace and creativity. Some people even trace in the history of Europe that the, you know, the great intellectual revolution of the 19th century, the 20th century, occurred in the coffee houses. People would gather in these coffee houses, and that was where the stimulating conversation was had. And so I think, I think church in a way, if it's done rightly, and of course, I think it's usually not done rightly, I think church is a third place. So let me, this is my paragraph, describing the way that our church is a third place. Likewise, our little church provides a place for Dale's storytelling, Larry's theologizing, and Lois's exhortation. It is the root of this little community, providing a core sense of place where all have a voice. The humble little white building is so unpretentious that it serves as a leveling device, much like the tiny entrance to a Japanese tea room. All are made to bow equally. There is no financial or political gain in this leveling place. Those interested in the vestments of power the presumption of self-importance, would feel ridiculous in the society with the singular prerequisite of willing acceptance. I have never heard an angry word spoken, as even the most serious topics are approached with great good humor and regard for the feelings of others. The homely surroundings, by definition, do not admit snobbery or exclusion. 
In other words, a piece of all its members is rooted in this little country chapel. Smoke and mirrors may entertain the masses, but spiritual well-being requires a heavier investment. Yeah, that paragraph, and then there's a there's a an aside, a reference to an earlier part that sort of wraps up wraps up the whole piece there. After that, forgive me, I, and I'm not trying to be overly effusive here, but oh, I just thought this was a. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant, and it was one of my favorite um, of your writings I've ever read. If not, if not right up there as my favorite, for that reason, that it. It opened up and revealed some things I used to feel and used to think. You know, I wanted this big church experience where I was a star of a show, and it those and I've seen them. I've been a part of those churches, and it is smoke and mirrors. It is that way because it's it's mimicking the things that the rest of the culture finds interesting, which is smoke and mirrors and power and self importance and a show and all that stuff that is just as meaningless as it can be when the real peace that happens, you have to not care about that, that stuff. You have to not want it. The way that paragraph wrapped up it, with the pictures of the people, and it's all another thing that that, that, that piece did was it, mm-hmm. it took pictures of people like Dell, who uh, I, I couldn't tell if it was Dell or if it was Larry who told the story twice Because it was just important to tell the story twice, even if you just told it a minute ago. And no, there is no, (laughs) you're not (laughs) self-important. It's just here we are. So when I would go to those churches, I would think, well, this is just a stepping stone Uh for me. And that was sin. That was wrong. The truth is that is, that's what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Some sense of that. Is what it should be. Maybe it took me, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a lifetime to come to this. The thing that the way I end it, I had described earlier the cemetery and told the story. You know, we had just had a death in the church. A lady, ninety-seven years old. She was Beverly's mother, and of course, they're all interrelated, and so. Uh, I had written, I don't know if you remember, I'd done another piece on imaging. I do remember. I would ask her how she is and say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I get around pretty good. No pain. She'd say the same thing every week. And then she'd tell me a story about her cat. And it was always the same story. That, you know, she had been having trouble walking lately. And she'd actually had a couple of falls. And the cat then would not leave her side. The cat would stay right by her. But anyway, she was kind of a beloved figure in the church, and she'd passed away. I had the privilege of of doing her funeral. But at some point, it wasn't actually right during the the funeral. But right after that, Larry, you know, he was showing me the, the cemetery, and he pointed out that, I it kind of in a proud way, you know, that the, the cemetery, the church is dates back, I think I said 1890, but I think the church is older than that. It's actually older than the building. So you're talking about 1880s, you know, think, think of what's happening in this country. You know, the Indian wars are, <laughs> are still going on. 
but anyway, there was a, there, he was kind of giving me a tour of the, the cemetery and pointed out that in the lower, it's actually in the north uh, yeah. east corner of the cemetery, that the, one of the first inhabitants of the cemetery was someone that they all knew had been hung. Yeah. And was, <laughs> was buried there. I don't know why he knows that, but they all know it. And of course, he was kind of proud, you know, that, you know, in this, in our cemetery, that we really just don't discriminate. We don't harp on the finer points of doctrine, that horse thievery or, you know, small indiscretions can be overlooked. But anyway, so I describe a few of the stories in the cemetery and I end the piece then. Again, I was going for double entendre, but I'm never sure. You can never be sure. Uh, if I can get single entendre, I feel pretty good about things. So. <laughs> if you could be buried in this lovely obscurity, this place out of time, without longing for bigger and better, there is an open plot south of Edgar Crewe, who is the man who had been hung, about two yards west of Imogene. The price of entry is $60 and a life. Larry had expressed to me, he was a little worried because the church is in such a beautiful place. The cemetery kind of overlooks the wood, you know, and the plots are so inexpensive that he, he expressed some worry that we would just be inundated by interlopers who would come in and buy them all up. And of course, the point is, well, actually, to be a part of this community, to know of this place, to be buried in this time and place, you know, the idea of, of being invested, giving one's life to this place. Uh, that's the price uh, to, to be a part of, of this group of people. Yeah. And so I conclude the piece. I think I can assure Larry he need not worry about a mob of interlopers. Well, it was beautiful. When I read it, I was having a rough day, and it I was just very grateful for it. That, that story is the kind of story that carries peace and hope, the peace and the yeah. hope that the gospel actually is trying to offer us. Uh, and it puts legs on. Because we do a lot of theology, and we talk about things in these sort of highly theoretical realms, but theology is going to include Jim and Betty Mayor Goat Farm award-winning goats, people wondering if their burial plots are too cheap and if <laughs> if they're going to get inundated. And, and it reminded me a lot of the kind of piece that I get reading about Port William or reading the poetry of, of Barry, or for that matter, reading the stories of the Old Testament and seeing their brokenness and their differentness from each other, even in those old stories. I have to say that this is this idea of appreciating a narrative has been a long endeavor for me. It's not one that should have been that difficult for me because my own father was a, was a great storyteller. And we were kind of raised on, you know, the stories. We'd all heard the stories, but they were such good stories. You know, a good story, like you don't mind telling twice. That was sort of the legacy. I've written on my father before that, you know, letters from Papa. 
as a child and our imaginations were populated by these people, that these characters, just in a small Kansas mm -hmm. town that he had known growing up, that he had this profound appreciation for people. He loved people and saw, you know, the, the uniqueness in people that he met. And I think that's a, a sensibility that we all need to develop that. In some way, it's very hard for us to do. Part of my life, I, I talk like I'm near in death or something all the time, but I think that at this end of my life, coming to appreciate that has been the community that we have, the forging plowshares that maybe through the trying circumstance that we've had. I've come to know people, you know, it, you and I had a strong friendship that has been deepened, but then also people here in this, in this community that came to our side in the midst of our own personal plague. And then there were people who you see a side of people. And I've come to just appreciate some of the people in our community that they just seem to have this gift for appreciating people and, and loving people and not trying, you know, there's no, no desire to critique them or change them, but to do life together. And I think that's, uh, that's sort of our motto here, you know, of forging plowshares, that, that we're really just kind of doing life together. It doesn't need to be anything dramatic. You know, we may be changing the world, but in a very tiny way in our small plot of land, right. in this small plate in the world. If you think about the, and I wanted to change the world, but if you think about what you're saying when you say that, you're, you're talking about yourself in, the, in such big terms. When we're supposed to think of ourselves in really small terms, we are the image of God. We are not God. God can change the world, and yet he chooses to use little tiny people because that's what he wanted to do. That was the whole purpose of this mess. You're not supposed to change the world. You're supposed to live in your little part of it and be like a little tiny version of what God is in that little part of it. I think that what we suffer from, what I presume we suffer from, is this rugged modern Western individualism. And I don't say that in saying that that's a new problem. It's the same old problem. It's just, it's got a very seductive language to it that that says that we are bigger, we can rise above, we can become more than we were. Wendell Berry always talks about it in terms of going and making something of yourself. If you've read any of his essays, uh, I think it's The Long-Legged House, which we actually read in one of our Poshers courses recently, where Wendell himself was, and he's a great writer, he's just a, f a superb writer, went to New York to write um, because he's from Kentucky, and everybody was telling him, you have to stay in New York, this is where you'll become great, this is where you'll do great things, you can't go back to Kentucky, and sort of rejecting all of that, decided he didn't want to, to write about anything else other than the small community life. He wanted to get smaller. The way I used to preach it when I was preaching through Matthew is when Jesus would talk about having the faith of a mustard seed. Maybe I'm twisting him a little bit here. I'm, I'm, I've done it before, but I don't think that he was saying that you can have like, you either have faith or you don't have faith, you know? How much faith do you go? Well, I've got a whole pumpkin seed of faith, you know? It, it does, that's not the way it works. 
you either have faith or you don't have faith. But what Jesus was always trying to get people to understand is that the kingdom works out in these very small ways. It's like a little piece of yeast. He compared us to a, a bacteria that sort of spreads out through a whole lump of dough. Or it's like a little tiny mustard seed that grows into a great big weed that undermines it, it uproots a garden. If you could just believe in this little tiny things, then that's what really makes a difference. That's why I think Wendell says you practice resurrection. You just live out in these little tiny ways, being with each other and loving each other. Yeah, I'm sad. I, I am broken up by the fact that there are a million, there's so much evil in the world. I can get so distracted and so obsessive about it. And yet the real peace has to be lived out in your own yard with your own neighbors. I don't think there's a clean way to say, oh, so here's your resolution. Because it isn't. You trust things to be left unresolved and trust that it will be resolved someday. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the theological point, is I think that what we would do theologically is make our theology serve a resolution that we would like to come up with. I think that, in fact, what we're left with in Scripture is an unresolved problem. It's partially resolved. We're pointed toward the answer, but it's an open-ended resolution that is still unfolding. And what we would like to do is bring closure in our various doctrines of eternal torturous existence or heavenly gates that we could imagine. But of course, none of those things actually serve in the place of, a, of an actual resolution. And so I think the very nature of Christianity is such that it's open-ended. But that open-endedness is an openness to the world. And it lets the world come in and have its meaning and its place as an unfolding part of the resolution. I haven't really written an essay or attempted to write a theological article for some time. I think what started happening a few years back was I started to be more interested in trying to explore that truth. The, the gospel means I'm turning a little more earthbound, a little less mm -hmm. heavenward. Someone might think that sounds like a complete contradiction, but to be more earthly and more other-oriented. And so I've tended to focus more on the people around me and the things around me and the creatures around me the natural world around me and seeking the restoration of those things, or at least an understanding of those things. What's occurred to me is that memory is so important that we remember. This is a very Jewish kind of thinking, mm -hmm. I think. You always are remembering and retelling stories to carry those with you for the next person to carry those with them as well, because there's value in those that's how a person continues to live on here. I mean, I believe in the resurrection and I'm, all my eggs are in that basket, but more and more I'm this worldly oriented in my thinking about what it means to carry on a person's, um, who they are. Yeah, there's a continuity. So that's the significance, I think, of resurrection is that every 
other religion, there would be a break between the hereafter and, and now. And I think the meaning of resurrection is that whatever that is, there is a continuity, the new earth, the new heaven. It's on a continuum with who and what and where we are now. So that in some way, the world and body and embodiment that we participate in now, that's what is resurrected. That's what is restored. And I don't quite know what that looks like. I've often wondered. When I I did my mother's, I spoke at my mother's memorial, all, all of us brothers got up and said something. I always thought, you know, both my mother and father were from Kansas. They were from a small town in Kansas. Could they be who they are apart from the community of people, the particular time and place? Isn't that what we're saying about the church, about the community of the church? That who we are is that we know who we are in and through this community of people, this place, in some way, even a time. I think the time itself is redeemed. So that to extract us from out of that or to remove that from us, well, that would be to remove who we are, uh, you know, from ourselves, a, a kind of inherent contradiction. Right. That's why I think remembering stories, remembering people, we have to assume that whatever resurrection is, it's going to be a restoration of things like stories and people. And on some level, loss if you're going to make right what was wrong, then we'll probably have to remember what was wrong in order for it to be made right again. If you'll indulge me, I wrote a poem for my grandfather. I was thinking of a painting that I have in my wall in my room. It's a painting he painted for me. I had a, I loved horses. I didn't know him as well as I wish I did because we moved around a lot. But this, I called this my grandfather's painting, and I think that there was a double entendre here, although I didn't know it until after I finished it. My grandfather, his beloved Jean long gone from his arms, having been stolen slowly piece by piece, must have struggled to learn to grieve, to comprehend her absence. I remember his home ornamented with her pictures, like demure smiling ghosts of her youth, shocking in their disparity to the hollow figure who had struggled to gasp her final breaths as she lay in her frail white gown. Her bed like an awkward stranger in the downstairs space he had made up for her. The last bed she would know had remained in that space, quiet and empty, kept company by a few of her things, get well cards and a miscellany of sterile plastic remnants of modernity's efforts to lengthen her life. To move it must have felt too much like moving on without her. How could he have imagined how to begin? It may as well have been made of stone. I have often wondered what a strange desperation he must have endured, that my grandfather found his expression in oil and canvas, and brush and palette. I wonder what it was like to first plunge his brush into the thick paints and to play with light and color, to wonder if this is what God feels like. I wonder how it felt to pour out his heart as he poured out the dark sienna and burnt umber from their tubes. I wonder how many hours he spent staring into his canvas flat surface, listening to the dull scratch of the palette knife wielded deftly by his hands, as he created trees and streams, rocks and mountains. I barely knew him, 
but I can still see him in the brush strokes of the painting he gave me when I was young. To please my childish infatuation, he had painted me a roan stallion, turned in profile behind an aged wooden fence, held with rusty nails and set against a clear fall sky, faintly clouded. In it I can see his love for me, but more for her. For me he painted the supple tones of the stallion's muscles. For her he simply painted, painting to ease his mind and his heart of his missing her. To allow some part of himself to forget the ache, to place it somewhere else than in his mind alone. Mm, mm. It occurred to me when I was looking at the painting one day that so much yeah. of him is in the painting and that it outlived him. And I walk by it so many times and don't even think about it. I would walk by it so many times and, and, and forget that there was this whole story behind it. And there it sits. And remembering that, it means that I trust in that pain is resolved and restored someday that I, I have to sort yeah. of wait for it. But the stories are messy because they're about people and people die and people, they do things that are wrong. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of tragedy. And, and in a sense, I think that what you're capturing in that, and I think in any authentic piece of writing is the inherent, you know, tragedy is the wrong word. That's, that's the wrong way to put it. There's a kind of sweet sorrow, I think, that we can understand in death, in passing, in finitude, that you're capturing there. I'm never quite sure. You've articulated it in poetry, and maybe that's the only way to articulate it. I have felt the same thing in going to, to funerals, especially my, my own parents' funerals, and actually the parent, my in-laws' funeral. They all lived a long life and, and a, a good life. And the funeral was, yeah, there is a, a kind of sadness, but there's also a feeling of a kind of completion. And, I, you know, to even talk this way, I'm never sure if anybody else feels it. That maybe it's the Christian hope, I don't, I don't know, that does this. The story is ended, and we can look back on it and appreciate it for all of its parts and and for who they were. That who they were is a is a completed portrait, and I think that's what you're what you're capturing there in, in that depiction of the painting. There's a passage that Vanji quotes a lot in Psalm 116: "Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of His saints." It has taken me a, quite a long time to reflect on what that is. I don't know that I, I don't think I understand it yet, but I, I repeat it to myself a lot. It's not something I've wrapped my head around, but it, there is a beauty to it. This is, a, I suppose, sort of a somber end to this, but I'm not sure that there really is a way around it. I think that the trick, and, and maybe it's important to say that what we're not saying is, well, we're all going to die anyway, so let's just be happy about it. <laughs> kind of what some folks are trying to say. Well, let's just let people die and just accept that. We look at death differently, but death and loss and all of those things, there is a, a, a restoration that our lives are supposed to be about. And that by living peacefully, we practice resurrection we practice restoration by not valuing things like progress or mm -hmm. the objective or the the economy in in the, that sense but in by valuing one another we're creating an alternative economy an alternative microcosm within a larger 
we live out of mic- the microcosm that I think Jesus tried to establish in the church. Sort of little tiny seeds of, of hope or peace or light in a darker place. At a time like this, when you're feeling so dark, those moments are so much more valuable. I've enjoyed our conversation. It's brought a little light into my life. I appreciate this, Jason. I've I've been looking forward to doing this. I think we should do more of these. You're the one that introduced me to Wendell Berry. You know that, right? Yeah, I do. I I, I have introduced him to quite a few people now. It was during my divorce that I was introduced to him. He's been a huge factor for us. Yeah, yeah. And so you have that appreciation. You had that sensibility about things. And through you, I've come to, to share in it. So I thank you. All right. Good, good conversation. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.